Amen. Thank you, Rudy. We continue in God's Word as we continue making our way through the book of Micah. Today we are in chapter 6, and I will be reading from verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and you redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened before Shatim to Gilgah that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Today in the sixth chapter of Micah, we enter the courtroom And Micah, speaking on behalf of God, is the plaintiff. Now this is no Judge Judy or people's court. This is God's court. It is, uh, without reproach, the jurors in this case are really the the whole cosmos, the, the mountains, the unshakable foundations of the earth are witnessing this. God himself is the judge and the jury, and he brings the justice. We talk a lot about justice. And here in this court, we're going to get it. But unlike our courtrooms where sometimes we uh, wrestle and debate what was right and what was wrong and did we really get justice or did we not and sometimes we disagree on the same outcome. Sometimes we have uh, as hard as we might frivolous lawsuits. I was reading one about a man who drank too much at a sporting event, fell at the stadium and then sued Ticketmaster for selling him the ticket. He won. Sometimes uh, we blame others and, or, or try to avoid the blame. But there will be no squirming out of 
justice in this courtroom. There'll be absolute justice in God's covenantal lawsuit, as scholars call it. Here we get a picture, a full picture, of God's justice and his mercy. We begin with an indictment in the beginning verses, and then the defense will have an opportunity to ask a question, although they never really do make a defense because they don't have much of one. Then we'll hear some proofs and evidence, and then we'll finally find the conviction. But something very strange will happen, something unexpected in this courtroom because it, it will go to a, a, a verdict to be sure and it will be a sure verdict but the end is different than what we might expect. Martin Luther tells us in the last two chapters, chapter 4 and chapters 5 as we stayed together in worship, uh, the prophet almost finished proclaiming the prophecy of the Christ to come, the kingdom of Christ through the gospel. But now in these next two chapters, these final two chapters in Micah, he returns to rebuking. But that rebuking with justice leads to grace. And so listen for that grace when we get to the end finally of uh, not only this sermon, but of this message from Micah today. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 for a moment, the indictment. And there's something strange there. You might have heard as you listened to it read this morning, or if you were looking at it on your Bible app or on your Bibles with you, after reading verses 1 and 2, hearing those indictments, there were no specific charges. That's because Micah has already laid the groundwork for those charges. In Micah chapter 1, you'll remember that, as we're, one scholar put it, the leaders just focused uh, at, on the bottom by looking at their own desires. They were often heartless and self-centered, not examining the full counsel of God. In Micah 2, we discovered that uh, that heartlessness led to no concern for the poor or the weak. In fact, just the opposite of God's definition of justice. And in Micah 3, we find out that those preachers, those preachers of the law and of God's word who were supposed to be carriers of God's word were in fact just preaching what they were getting paid to say, what people wanted them to hear. And so those charges sit in the background of this indictment. Those same charges, though, as you'll soon see, get pointed towards us as well. The first proof is interesting. In verses 3 and 4, it doesn't begin with, uh, after the indictment, what these leaders, what Micah's audience has done wrong. The first proof is in verse 3 and 4 of what God has done. And do you notice he recalls rescuing his people out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Just like he introduced the Ten Commandments, this summary of those Ten Commandments in verse 8 is introduced 
by God's plan to save his people, a plan that he completed. And so the first submission of evidence comes when he talks about a God who turns cursing into blessings. He turns curses into blessings. What do I mean? Well, he, he, he lets us know that by recalling the story of King Balak of Moab and the prophet Balaam. You maybe re- recall from the book of Numbers, this is a story where King Balak wanted to have Balaam, the prophet, come and curse Israel. And so, like was custom in the day, and like we saw many of the prophets and priests doing what they were paid for in previous chapters in Micah, Balaam was paid to come and curse God. But he would listen to the one true God, and instead of bringing curse after curse, he brought blessing after blessing. God is a God who turns curses into blessings. He does that in our lives still today. He turns curses into blessings. And then as the defendant uh, comes before the court, they ask a question. Maybe it's a question that you've asked of God before. What is it, God, that you expect of us? What should we give that would please you? And what they soon discover is that nothing they could do or give will make satisfactory for the charge against them. I mean, they ask, can we, can we, can we sacrifice thousands of rams? Can we expend all of our financial resources and give that to you? Will, will you bless us then? No, that is not how God works. Well, what about sacrifices of those rams? Isn't that what you want, God? Yes, but God is looking for the sacrifice of a pure heart. We'll hear that from Jesus later on, where he's looking not for sacrifice, but for our hearts, as he says in Matthew 9. What about, how about this, God? Well, we'll, like, like the pagans around us, we'll offer our firstborn. You have to understand in the Hebrew culture, the firstborn was the hope for the future of their family. So the very future we're, we're, we'll stake on the salvation of our souls, God, we'll give you our firstborn, we'll sacrifice that, as repugnant as it sounds. And yet, and yet, even that is not enough. Because again, God wants their heart. Martin Luther puts it like this. He says, uh, manifestly condemning here any gesture. Micah is manifesting any, manifestly condemning any gesture or external work, however fine they might be, if the heart is not pure. So what can we do? Well, the the next proof comes, more evidence, this time evidence that can't be contradicted. And here's how we'll spend most of our time this morning in this one verse, in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness 
and to walk humbly with your God. Well, now that's where we get into the forensics of it. Let's look at what God is calling us to do. In this summary of the Ten Commandments, first introduced by God's rescue plan, now inviting us as a way to live. I said last week that this week we'd learn what we're called to do. And here it is. It's nothing new. The hearers would have known this, should have known this. It's a recap of the commandments. What is it that God is asking of us? And what's interesting about this is it does exactly what the law always does. It tells us what we're called to do, but it also reminds us that we haven't done it, that we need help, we need a rescue plan, we need a savior. Let's look at it carefully and forensically, if you will, to pick up this theme of courtroom. Let's look at this call to do justice. The word there in Hebrew is mishpat. And whenever this word, almost always when it's used in the Old Testament, it refers to the care of the widow, of the orphan, of the immigrant, of the poor. To, to do justice isn't to just enact a punishment. It's the care for the weak among us. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, do this unto the least of these and you do it unto me. Or in the Beatitudes, as Jesus unpacks it, Luther puts it like this as he defines justice. It means to harm no one, to render each person what is his own, to bother no one, on the other hand, to help others, to promote their welfare, to prevent damage and violence so that the wealthy may not surround and press the needy and so that the guilty may be punished and the innocent protected. God's justice goes way beyond the justice that, that we uh, get defined in our world today. So often uh, we shame people there or we cancel but what God invites us to do is more than just punish, more than just shame, but to love the oppressed. We can not love God and hate our neighbor. And so this call to do justice is extensive. To care for the weak among us. But that's not all, right? Not just to do justice, but also to love mercy or love kindness, as it's translated in the version I read for you. This word kindness or mercy is the same word that gets translated as God's steadfast love throughout the Old Testament. Hesed. God's unconditional love for us. You might be more familiar with the Greek version of it in the New Testament, agape, God's unconditional love. And so we are called to love 
unconditionally, even those, as Jesus says, even those we hate. Those who hate us, we are actually called to love. And so, we are called to love as God loves us unconditionally. Do you notice, even in the midst of this indictment, God calls his people, my people. He loves us unconditionally. God's steadfast love gets revealed here for us to follow. Even the apostle Peter, when Jesus said, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Peter responded in the New Testament after Jesus had risen from the dead. Lord, you know I love you with a human brotherly love. Not, I can't love you like that. And he confessed. The Apostle Paul, like manner, said the things I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I just keep on doing in chapter 7 of Romans. If Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul can't get it, it's true for us as well, isn't it? We fall short of this standard of justice and mercy and kindness and unconditional love. And as we fall short, we get another invitation in this challenge. To what? To walk humbly with our God. Now this word in Hebrew hasna is intimacy with God. We're called to come to God and walk with him closely and humbly. I like how one pastor put it. He said it like this, quoting Eugene Peterson, that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Even though we sometimes have three steps forward and two steps back, we stay in the same direction. And how do we know what that direction is? Well, you heard it read in the psalm today, in Psalm 34. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the folks in chapter 3 in Micah, they, they like to, and so do we, don't we? Like the part, I like that part, desires of my heart. <laughs> uh, that fits real nicely in what I want to do today. But we forget the first part of that verse, delight yourself in the Lord. And when we delight ourselves in the Lord, what happens? We do justice, love, mercy, and then walk humbly. Our heart's desires are transformed by delighting in the Lord. One pastor quoted some of the early Methodists as they would consider, have I walked humbly in the light of the Lord today? And so they'd ask themselves these questions to challenge themselves. Questions like, have I not only prayed today, but been fervent? Have I practiced God's presence by talking to him every hour? Have I harbored uh, thoughts of anxiousness, or have I cast them all to the Lord, completely trusting in Him? Have I spoken or thought unkindly toward others? That's where Jesus takes it to the next level, the Beatitudes. Have I wasted 
my time or have I used it well for the benefit of those around me or have I just focused on my own spiritual, mental uh, growth or have I tried, I'll add, avoided those who drain me. We all have folks who drain us and yet these are the questions asked, have I walked humbly with my God? And I think as you look at your own life and as I look at mine, and we come to this standard in Micah 6.8, just as the defense there had no answer, neither do you, neither do I. This law, this court, this court convicts. The sentence will get summarized at the end of the chapter in verses 13 and following. And if I ended the sermon right here saying, okay, just go do justice, Go do mercy and kindness and walk humbly with your God. You would, like I would, be crushed because we realize we can't do it. But that's not where this message ends. Thankfully, we have the full counsel of God. And and as Isaiah preaches a similar message and brings us to a similar court, it He takes us from there in the book of Isaiah to the suffering servant in chapters 52 and 53. Because God's specialist, as I've quoted Luther so often, the law leads us to the gospel. And when we're led to the gospel, well, we're led to hope. You see, religion operates like this, and I like how one pastor put it. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel operates differently. The gospel says, because I'm accepted, because the Messiah, as we heard last week, born in Bethlehem, come has come. Because God's rescue plan has come. Because of that, therefore then I obey. Why? Because this Messiah that has come, he keeps mishpat. He keeps justice where we can't. He keeps and offers unconditional love, has said, where we cannot. He invites us and shows us how to walk humbly with our God. As he invites us to pray, Abba, Father, our Father who art in heaven, he invites us to an intimate relationship with God. So often when we strive to obey, we strive to obey just to get the grade, right? But God, through Christ Jesus, has already given us the grade. It's like, uh, and reflecting on one author who put it like this, I remember taking myself included a music appreciation class in college and you listen to the classics to get the grade as opposed to listen to their beauty. Another quoted C.S. Lewis when he said, we weren't called to be made nice, good people. We're called to be made new in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? Well, we run and turn to the one who comes to rescue us. Micah is pointing 
at the end of this court case of our guilt and conviction and sentence to be sure. But he's also alluding to a Messiah that is to come and for us we know has come. Remember that offer to sacrifice the firstborn? Well, guess what? God did that for you and for me and for our future and for our hope. There's nothing we can do to get there, but God has sacrificed his own firstborn, the coming Messiah, God's masterpiece plan, even despite of our mess, has made it possible. Yes, this lawsuit comes to an end in chapter 6 in dramatic fashion with the guilty being guilty and convicted. But God's masterpiece plan doesn't end there. God's rescue plan, which he alluded to in the Passover, the, the rescue out of Egypt, we now celebrate at this table complete, not now with the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the Son of God. This meal fulfills and reminds us and we remember what Christ has done. We're invited to partake in this kind of grace. And because we have that grace, because we're invited to be part of God's masterpiece plan, we now do justice, love mercy and kindness, and walk humbly with our God because he has made it possible. Amen.